Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Master Sommelier Isabar was born and brought up in Turkey and didn't taste his first glass of wine until he was 20 years old. A job as a junior sommelier working at the vineyard at Stockcross was the start of an award-winning career that soon progressed from the fat duck in Bray to co-owning his own restaurant, Trivet, in London. Listen to us discuss what makes a good and bad wine list, his passion for the historic wines of the Caucasus, how sommeliers have to be good psychologists, and why he's never bought a book about food and wine matching in his life. Hello, Issa, how are you? I'm very well, Tim, thank you very much. And where are you at the moment? I am in, I am at Trivet, in the Trivet restaurant in Bermondsey. Beautiful Bermondsey. Oh, it's thank you. London. It is, yes. <laughs> The finest part of London, indeed. Yeah, and, and fantastic news. You've recently got a Michelin star, uh, which is great news, although you've obviously had Michelin stars in the past when you were at the Fat Duck, but it's great that you guys have got a Michelin star. And you got a special award as well, didn't you? You got the, the Sommelier Award. Yes, it's. I think it's something that uh, Michelin started last year as the first time. And I, I like it in the fact that they chose the right person, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> no, but uh, joking aside, I think uh, it's really important that Michelin starts to recognize professions that exist within the gastronomy uh, other than chefs. Yeah. Sommeliers being one of the important part of it. And I think it can only be a good thing that they start to recognize and give credit to those part of the operation as well. Yeah, because wine is, is a very important part of the meal for most people, I think. Well, I, I don't think you can separate them. Well, at mm. least in the culture we operate anyway. Yeah. Uh, wine and food is, is together. You cannot really separate them. They, they, they complement and complete one another. Mm, I think that's very true. Well, listen, we'll come back to that in a minute. I just want to get a little bit of your backstory because you're Turkish. I mean, you speak perfect English. Obviously, you've been here a long time, but you were born, you were brought up in Turkey. I just wonder, was wine part of your life when you when you were growing up? Because alcohol and Turkey has a slightly strange relationship. There are some people obviously don't drink at all uh, if they're Muslim. Yeah, I think part of the population in Turkey, alcohol is one of the big no's. Um, mm-hmm. You don't go near it. And wine wasn't necessarily part of my bringing up. Um, it was more, we, we did drink other things like Raki and home, home distilled stuff and stuff like that. But I actually, I don't think I have drunk wine um, until I was in Germany um, as part of my university course. So what age did you first drink wine? Uh, I must have been around 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's it. it I, I came into wine very late uh, yeah. and I started like working as, as sommelier or in wine when I was 27. Because you got a job at the vineyard at Stockcross, didn't you? That's right, uh, yes. And, and did they take you on as a sommelier? I mean, it doesn't sound like you were a wine expert at that point. Not at all. Um, that's, um, I have actually started by working as a chef de run and then... 
they had offered me a head waiter job. And I said, actually, no, I don't want that. Can I be a commis sommelier instead? And they were kind of a bit taken aback by that request. And I, I had really enjoyed what I seen there. And an interest grew in me to get involved. And Eduardo, um, then the FMB manager and the sommelier in the vineyard at Stopcross, gave me the chance and that was it. So, and you were 27 before you started working as a junior sommelier, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was 27 and I, I, I was actually polishing about 800 rebel glasses a day. I was very good at it. <laughs> well, that's what you do when you're a junior Without breaking sommelier. any of them, right? Well, I mean, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after that, you, you know, you were at the Vineyard at Stockcross, fantastic wine list. Then you had a spell at Clos Maggiore in Covent Garden. Then you moved to the Fat Duck. Yeah. in Bray, when that was where you really made your name, it was where I first became aware of you, definitely, as I did other people. Just how, how did you meet Heston Blumenthal? I used to I used to be mates with the head sommelier at the Fat Duck, uh, purely through the competition we did, competitions we did. And I had sort of beaten him a few times. And we became friends, and when he was leaving... And I think they were looking to find someone. So he suggested me uh, as his replacement. And then I had a phone call from them. And that's that's how it started, basically, that back in 2005. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's true connections, which, which really highlights the importance of, in our profession. Of being nice to people. Being nice <laughs> to people or, or, you know, just... Get on with them and value your connections, basically. Yeah. And, and did you enjoy the kind of theatrical side of of working there? I mean, it was always an, it was sort of an experience, wasn't it, eating at the Fat Duck? Still is, obviously. Well, actually, the, the interesting thing about there was I went to eat there, I think it was 2002, with two of my friends. Didn't really know much about the restaurant at all. They suggested we went. And... After the lunch I had there, I thought, this is a nice place. I like to work here one day. But I had done nothing about it, so <laughs> it just came to me. Um, but the theatrical part of the, uh, that restaurant is that everyone seems to pay attention to that. Uh, but there is an amazing skill and knowledge uh, at the background of it. Some may come across as gimmicky, but um, a lot of the things was really set on solid foundations. That's why I think they have that longevity. They are, what, now 27-year-old there? Yeah. I mean, some of the crazier dishes must have been difficult to match with wine, were they? Snail porridge. Probably snail porridge is not that hard. Snail porridge was, consider it like a a burgundian snail dish. It's literally (laughs) that. Um, (laughs) And it, it really worked well with many different things. Yeah. That was quite an easy one, but there were a couple of difficult ones, um, like the mock turtle soup. The only thing it would work was actually what you call the, um, the only thing it would work was Madeira. But on a tasting menu flight, if I put a Madeira before people have eaten anything <laughs> solid, <laughs> they were all getting really drunk and I had to take it off. <laughs> But it really worked well with it. 
I mean, when you were at the fact that you won the best sommelier in Europe competition, yes. um, do you enjoy the kind of, or did you enjoy the adrenaline of live competition? Because it's quite stressful doing those competitions, isn't it? It's live. Do right? you know, uh, I, as a person, I don't tend to get stressed that easily. I can I can perform very well under what other people might consider as a stressful situation. Um, more than the competitive edge, very early on in my career, I realized that I needed a sort of goalpost um, to sort of keep myself motivated, keep myself developing. And competition sort of gave me that base to look forward to something and work for something so that I could just develop my knowledge. And it was winning competition for me was more a personal satisfaction and leaving a little mark for the time when I'm gone. Yeah. You know? <laughs> You'll be on a board somewhere, right? Or yeah. on, a, on, a, on a trophy. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I think I think I achieved that. But it, it helped me immensely in terms of uh, widening my network of people I know around the world. I mean, there are very few cities now in the world that I can go and I don't know someone. <laughs> and you can go and have dinner, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, after that, you know, you then became in 2009 a master sommelier. I think there are about 260, 69 of them in the world. Just tell us a little bit about what it takes to be an MS, a master sommelier. It's very different from the master of wine, isn't it? It is, yes. I think, I think there is an element of craziness in it, if you like. If you look at the statistics, it's like 3% of people who starts the program ends up at the other side as a master sommelier. It's even worse than the master of wine. Absolutely. And if you enroll yourself to any degree course in a university, you know, if you do the minimum effort, you will get a degree. But master sommelier isn't like that. So it's really a hard one. And I think one has to really commit everything, time-wise, effort-wise, into it and hope that you can pass the exam because there is a good chance you may not, mm. as the numbers say, mm. you know. And I don't know, it's it's a really difficult one to to justify the effort, actually. Uh, obviously, but once you pass it, it's you it, have it for life. It was and, well worth it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but... Um, but it involves presentation, doesn't it? It, it, does, it involves blind tasting in front of a panel. It's written, it's service, it's, it's a lot of stuff. Yes, there, there is like a service element of it, which, is, which has become quite hard in the last few years. There is a blind tasting element, which you do orally without writing anything. You're just talking. And then there is the question element, the theory element, again, which is done orally without written exam. So it's, it is quite a high-pressure exam. Maybe that's why the pass rate is so low. I, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you've mentioned the fat duck, and you were there for 12 years, very successful 12 years, and you went to Melbourne for a while. I think you were doing something involved with the fat duck there, weren't you? But then you set up your own restaurant, Trivet, yeah. with, with Johnny, with Johnny Lake, who'd been at the fat duck with you pretty much at the same time, really. But what, what made you go out on, on, on your own? Because your timing wasn't great. You weren't to know that at the time, were you? But... I mean, I, I've been known to... Have, have good timing. <laughs> and, but that wasn't it. No, that was not that one. And when, when I was there, I really enjoyed all my time. And, but it comes to a point 
you have ideas and you want to create something and make something. So for me, that was the key uh, thing that to create something and create your thoughts, put your thoughts into a reality and see people enjoy it or not, as the case may be. <laughs> so that was that was kind of like, yeah, dancing to our own tune, if you want. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different experience, isn't it, from the Fat Duck? Um, yeah, I, I, it's pretty relaxed, especially for a one-star Michelin restaurant. I, mean, I like going there a lot. I mean, how would you describe it? I think you once said it was intricate yet simple. Would that be about right? Is that your motto in a way? I think so. I, what we would like here is uh, we would like people to have the highest quality that we can offer to them. But also we want to take away all the bullshit, if you like, from fine dining. And just make it simple. At the end of the day, eating and drinking are some of the most pleasurable things that humans do. Mm. Just keep the pleasure with it. You know, we don't need to pretend that it's an occasion that is has to be. It's basically you as a customer, mm. your enjoyment comes first. Mm. And we enjoy it as you enjoy it. That's that's how we try to do it. We try to keep it simple, but correct. Uh, and we constantly look for new things, new ideas. But those are the things we do in the background. You don't have to see yeah. all of that. You, you are interested in the glass that is in front of you, filled with a good glass of wine. Yeah. The plate that comes to you, nicely plated, very well cooked, with high ingredients. That's what we are. And good service, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, your wine wine list, for which you've won an award, and and rightly so, is is organised in a unique way. It's the only wine list I've ever seen in the world like this. Can you explain its chronology to us? Because it starts in 7,000 BC and it finishes in 3,000 AD. We haven't got to 3,000 AD yet, but at the end of it says Mars, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, when, when when I was working on the wine list, uh, one of my gripe with the wine list throughout the world has always been you get this big sort of tom of wine list, mm. producer after producer, vintage after vintage, price after vintage. There is no interaction. Mm. And that just sort of becomes a mundane and boring exercise that is trying to offer some of the most pleasurable drink in the world to people. So I thought I need to find a way of presenting these wines, that people have fun looking through it. Mm. Also, it creates conversation between the sommelier and the customer. But it took me a good eight months to come up with that idea. I knew kind of the wines I wanted to list there, but I didn't know how to present it to people. And I was actually reading the uh, some of the old books uh, Patrick McGowan has written, and he's a... He's an expert in the history of wine, or is it the ancient history of wine? Yes, he's a molecular archaeologist, professor of molecular archaeology in Pennsylvania University. And he had visited the Turkey and those countries, and he has written a book called Ancient Wine, I think, and there is another one that he has written. So he talks about all of that. That kind of was the was the book that sort of inspired me to to organize my wine list like that. So I wrote to him and 
I wrote to him with a sort of chronology. I said, would you mind checking this and sort of prevent me making a big mistake on any of the dates? He said, no, you are pretty much like on the, on the spot there. So and you that, start with what, Armenia? Georgia, Armenia, Turkey. It's somewhere around there, basically. Yeah. And northern Iran, actually. That's, that's there as well. But obviously that's irrelevant at the moment. Mm. Who knows? Maybe we may see. I have had once wine from Iran. I, mean, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Syrian wine. No, it was Iranian wine. I had it, but um, obviously illegally made. Uh, <laughs> but can you imagine the poor soul trying to make wine in Iran? It's like, what would happen to that person? We'd probably get, you'd probably be executed, wouldn't you? Yes. Yes. So despite all that danger, he's brewing wine, which... You cannot hide because, you know, fermentation smell is so obvious. Exactly. Uh, but anyway, so I did have a chance to try one. Um, it was interesting to try it anyway. So, so, so it moves chronolo chronologically, doesn't yes, it? So you start yes. with that, but with the Caucasus, really, and then and Eastern. Yes, it starts, it starts from there, and then it sort of moves down to Lebanon, that area, then Syria. That, interestingly, Crete and part of northern Greece are actually very early on, like 4,500 BC. So they have got activity there. And when you look at that in that sense, it's amazing what percentage of customers who comes to restaurant have never realized that they were making wine well before France or Italy did. So, and that gets them interested, right? They sort of say, oh, I'll, I'll try a wine from Armenia or Turkey or Georgia. Yeah? Absolutely. And, and, and this has also shown me, if you are if you are making an offer and making it an interesting way, it works. People yes. people definitely appreciate that and value that. But they the the good thing is they are coming back and trying it again. It's not just a one-off thing. So obviously that speaks volume in terms of what those countries are doing as well. Yeah, I mean the, the Michelin guide when they gave you this award recently. Um, talked about you as a torchbearer for lesser-known regions. Do you think of yourself as a torchbearer for anything for lesser-known regions, or are we just listing good wines? I think I think there are better people out there who deserve that uh, uh, title because you know. Let's take Georgia. Uh, Georgia is represented by many people who knows Georgian wine a lot better than I do. I I taste the wines, and my criteria is that if I like it the quality, not necessarily the style, um, then that's good for me. So, but yeah, because of the way the wine list is listed, I suppose, it kind of gives that image as well. But for me, the biggest thing is I just love wine, you know? <laughs> so, the, I mean, how is the list divided into numerically? I mean, would it be half from classic regions and half from... From lesser known regions, would you say? No, I think I think Italy and uh, France make the core of the list. Yeah, they probably cover about forty percent, give or take. And then, because the list, list is large, then you have uh, Turkey, Armenia, Georgia, Greece. Uh, they probably make about fifteen to twenty percent. Okay. Yeah. And then you have got. Um, Austria, we have got quite a lot of wine from Austria, both yeah. red and white. 
Well, and, and also it'd be worth saying there are lesser known regions within France and Italy, of course. I mean, Absolutely. you know, obviously Barolo is very well known, Bordeaux is very well known, but I don't know, you know, bits of Fougere, for example, is not so well known in the Languedoc or, I don't know, somewhere in Italy, I don't know, uh, the, the, the vineyards, I don't know, from... Vineyards from, of Ischia or something. Well, Ischia would be a good example, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, or, I mean, Etna's better known now, but I mean, yeah. you know... Or, I think Etna is Vultere, now. you know, yeah. in the south of Italy, let's say. Absolutely. But uh, I, do, I do love the classics as well. It's like there is nothing... Uh, like a very nice Barolo or yeah. Barbaresco, you know, when you have them, they are just amazing. And in fact, actually, um, that's my next step here at Trivet. Uh, I am working on a addition to the list, if you like. I'm going to create a B list. A B list? Yes. <laughs> the, it's called the B list. Well, I'll call it the B list anyway. And it's going to be consisting of Barolos and Barbarescos only. Ah, what a good idea. <laughs> Well, I'll call, I'll call it the B-list. The B-list. <laughs> Tongue in cheek, you know. Look at your list. It offers wines, amazingly, the cheapest wine on the list I could find is £25, and you, then you're right up to, you know, nearly £2,000 a bottle, £1,700 a bottle, I think. I mean, 25 quid is pretty reasonable for a Michelin-star restaurant, probably unheard of. I, mean, I just wonder, as a restaurant consumer, if you were going to a restaurant, where, where is the sweet spot on, on, a, on a restaurant? Do you know... The £25 is there for somebody who doesn't want to spend any more than that. But interestingly, I think last time we sold one of those bottles was about six months ago. So it's not something that people go on daily basis. Um, for us, for us in the restaurant, it's around, say, 60 to £100 is yeah. where people tend to go for. Um, that's usually where we have the bulk of the wine drunk. And we have plenty of those wines in terms of in that price bracket. There are like hundreds. And do you think that's the sweet spot? If you're, if you're going to a restaurant, you should be aiming to spend between 60 and 100 pounds, unless it's a special occasion. It really you? depends on the restaurant you are going. Uh, yeah. But with us, 60 to 100 pounds will get you a pretty good wine. Yeah, I think uh, that's true. But in some restaurants, that may not be the case. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder about that. I mean, are you deliberately taking lower margins on wine to encourage people to try new things? I am, yes. Um, but also, even even with some of the more classic wines, well-known Grand Cru's and this and that, uh, I am deliberately keeping it uh, with lower margin because I like people to drink, drink them. Yeah. You know, we, we sell them, for example, take away as well. Some of the wines on my list are more expensive to take away than to drink in here on purpose because I would rather have them drink here than take it away and try and sell it again in the secondary market. Because Yeah, well, that's the, terrible if people do that, isn't well, it? Well, you know, um, you wouldn't want that happen anyway, but just just so that it's a message as well to people saying, Look, these wines are, may come across cheap. We know they are. That's the message. Yeah. So we know what we are doing. We are just not making a mistake. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting when when I go to Trivet and I always enjoy going there and I do this myself, people let you choose the wine. I always let you choose the wine. I, mean, I just wonder how you decide what to offer them. I and mean, the food is obviously part of it. But what else? Does your 
job involve a little bit of psychology and of kind of understanding of people? Definitely. I think, I think you, you can ask them questions. Um, sometimes, you know, if someone tells me how they drink their coffee, that gives me actually a pretty good idea. What how they, they drink like. their coffee? Yeah. <laughs> like if someone is drinking coffee with lots of milk, sugar, then you are, you are really looking to... Uh, looking at someone who is likely to like wine quite ripe with uh, some sweetness to it and things like that. If you are looking at someone who con- constantly drink their coffee black with no sugar, they, they are likely to enjoy more rustic sort of Nebbiolo-like wines. The B-list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what about in terms of price? I mean, how do you, I mean, do you look at what people are wearing? Do you look at how confident they are around wine? I mean, does that kind of stuff help you? Uh, no, I think you can ask them questions, um, like what they normally like, etc. Or when you are suggesting, you give them an option. I often get people saying, have you got something like this, pointing something a bit more expensive? than yeah. what you're recommending or something like that, a bit less maybe. Mm. Um, but also some people just, they just tell you. It's like, what they want. Yeah, yeah. we want something. It's, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of a dance in a way, isn't it? It's a, it's a courtship in a way between yeah. the sommelier, a good sommelier, I think, and the customer that you're trying to work out what they like and they're, you're, they're, you're, they're trying to work out what you like. I think that's, that's the key. Working out what they like and understanding what they like. And the price really comes into it afterwards. Yeah. Once you understand what they like, then then you know they are going to go for a Grand Cru Burgundy. If yeah. that's what well, they like, then great. obviously it will cost more than a Chardonnay from Chile. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people in the restaurant business say, oh, the customer's always right. Um, have you ever... Ask somebody to leave where you just thought you're completely wrong. Can, what happened? Was that uh, the fat duck or was it a trivet? Um, it was a trivet and I once did it at the duck as well. Um, it's, it's the one thing I'm not going to tolerate is when they are being abusive to people that are working there or to the other customers. I won't tolerate that. It's that if they are being abusive to any of my staff in any way, I lost them too. And what do you say? Thank you very much, but here's your coat. Well, I, I just asked someone to bring their jacket. I said, they are leaving now. And I said, you should leave now and don't come back. That's so it. the customer's not always right? No, of course not. You know, we are, we are at an age where, where I don't think anyone needs to put up with any abuse. So that's where I draw the line. Other than that, bit of drunken banter, this and that, I can yeah. deal with that. But when it comes to actual abuse, could be abusing a physical appearance of a person or yeah. religion or whatever, that's, that's an all. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about food and wine matching because you're, you're extremely good at that. Um, I just want to ask a couple of things about what one is what's the secret of it and the other is do you think people worry too much I mean you, people buy whole books about it and they're kind of worry oh have I got the right wine to serve at the right moment with the right food can you just give us a few tips how what, what's your approach to it I have I have never read a single book on food and wine matching <laughs> and and I don't think I will ever uh, for me for me 
uh, we all eat and drink, right? And it's it's a kind of an experience thing as well. As you work, get older, you have tasted a lot of food, you have tasted a lot of wine. You know in your head what will work with that. But also there is the accepted norms, this and that. Uh, uh, for me, the main thing, I never look at the flavor of the wine, never look at the flavor of the dish. I only look at the structure of both. I try to match that. Interesting. That's generally what I work on. Yeah. And and also, you need to frame the people as well. You know, I'm not saying that in a bad way. Mm. It helps them to enjoy it. It's if you if you know what they are looking for, and if you have suggested the wine. You use the keywords they give you. If they say to you, I love, I love really rich, full-bodied wines with my lamb and things like that, use those words when you are talking about the wines. When you serve the wine. You, yeah. you, you quote their words back to them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. That's, that's, that's good psychology again, yeah. right? And then also, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Is there anything that's impossible to match with with wine? Where you must you might say, "I'll serve a beer" or "I'll serve a sake." I mean, I remember I went to El Bulili years ago, and and quite a few of their dishes were matched with beer. Actually. Yeah, I, you, think, I know you use sake quite a bit. You know, you? beer works very well with food, but I'll be quite honest with you: it's you don't make the same money. <laughs> You know, it's it's uh, it does work well, but also I prefer wine personally yeah. uh, with my food. Sake, sake, I believe is probably a drink that is that is the like Allen key of drinks. If if something is not working with wine or with anything else, use sake. You'll uh, be fine. Yeah. That's that's a very good tip. I would say sherry, but I, mean, I think sake is probably is not as strong. Well, as it? sherry sherry has its. Uh, Morgan says, uh, for example, artichokes are notoriously difficult. Yeah. And sherry often deals well with artichoke as well. So it's actually sherry is one of the very few good manzanilla sherry, depending on how the artichoke is made, yeah. can be brilliant. With- so maybe we'll have two Allen keys. We're going to have a sherry and we're going to have, yeah. <laughs> have sake, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, and one of the things I like about your list is that it, it has these symbols on it to help the customer. And one of them, it looks a bit like you. I don't know whether it's supposed to be you. Is, is somebody with wild hair, and it's for funky wines that you describe as challenging. Yeah. I just wonder how do you persuade people to say, "Hey, I'll have a challenging wine." But you know, spot? you know, I think I think in there, for example, there is a reverse psychology. You are saying this is funky, this is challenging. You are not likely to enjoy it. <laughs> and people are going, hang on a minute, I'll try and make my mind, mind up about it. I think that's how it works. We never actually have to persuade people on them. They just choose it themselves. Oh, they, oh, so you don't recommend the funky wines? No, it's no, usually they go if, for themselves. If you do, we tell them uh, the style. And often when you explain the style, they kind of go, well, why are you telling me this? I, I just want to try it anyway. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like and do they buy a whole bottle or just try it by the glass? Uh, both, both. There is quite a market for it, Tim. Uh, people do like, there is a certain segment of population, they love those wines. And I think if I ignored it totally, I would be making a mistake as a restaurateur. And are you attracting those sorts of customers to Trivet? Yeah, yeah. They are quite a mix. We get some very classically minded people and we got some people, they would only drink those. 
So, so, and they're coming because of the wine list or because of the food or a bit of both? Both, I think. Both. It's not often. It's not often you get places where you can eat and drink well. It's either one is missing or the other. That's very true. And, and it's interesting. I noticed that when you and Johnny develop dishes, you develop them with wines in mind. Almost. So you, that wine is one of the building blocks from the start. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very important for us. So you're tasting wines with the dish as Johnny's creating it, really? Yeah, and I am also looking at it, uh, and if I see any sort of red flags, I say, maybe we should have a look at this again. Yeah. So it's very, it's a good relationship in that sense. We just can talk without... Yeah, any... when you're very close and you spend a long time working together, haven't you, as well? Absolutely. So it's a very strong friendship, really. Absolutely. You know, we're talking about funky wines. What do you think of the term natural wines? Does it mean a lot to you? Do you think it's a useful term? I hate it, personally, um, simply because there is no parameters there. You know, it's, it's such a loose term. And it's very hard to box it into anything. There are good intentions, obviously. There are lots of very well-meaning, good-intentioned people, but there are also, I think, some who are abusing it. And yeah, it's a problematic area in our industry that needs a bit more thought and action maybe to tidy it up a bit. Yeah, a bit more precision maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I mean, I want, yours is obviously a very good wine list and we talked a lot about that. I, I just wonder what makes a bad wine list? I mean, you've talked about these big tomes, you know, where you can barely lift the list off the, off the, the table. Do you have any other pet hates, things you really hate in wine lists? Generally, when I go to a restaurant, if I see a list that is entirely made up from one supplier, yes, that, that kind of shows a degree of laziness, I think. Only we would know that, really. Most customers yeah. wouldn't know that, would they? Yeah, that shows a degree of laziness. And... <sighs> Price is a price, you know, you either buy it or you don't buy it. There is no point in arguing the price of a place. But I do get upset if I see a very standard wine and charge extortionate prices. That does upset me. Yeah, where you get, I mean, without being rude about the wine, but, you know, you get a cloudy base Sauvignon Blanc at £100 a bottle or something, yeah. and you know that they bought it for 8 or something. Yeah, you know? that kind of thing. Yeah. But the, another thing I dislike is is the split vintage, you know, where you get something that says 2019 stroke 20. Yeah. Does that annoy you as well? Yeah, which one? <laughs> or, or, or one with no vintages. Yeah. And I know the another thing you don't like is, is people leaving the wine in an ice bucket yeah. 20 yards away from the table. So you're always waiting for the wine. Does that annoy you? It does. It does. If you do that, you need to serve it. If you are not, then put it on the people's table. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, do, do you do you mind if customers serve themselves? Not at all. No. Yeah. Why should I? They are yeah. doing my job, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, and we, we've talked we've talked about your your lesser known regions and what you're doing for them. But which, which countries do you think are underrated uh, in your view and overrated? I'd like to ask both. If there's a other countries you think all oh, people should buy those more, I think Portugal is definitely underrated. Uh, it needs to be recognised more. The new Spain is underrated still. It needs to be. And interestingly, uh, I think some of the old Spain is overrated. <laughs> and and also, I just think Bordeaux is a bit overrated, to be honest. 
And, um, and what about things like the States? I mean, do you think those wines are a bit overrated sometimes, like Napa? I think they are not rated. <laughs> At all? <laughs> no. <laughs> they are definitely overrated. They are, they are, it's another world. That, that is not really a wine thing. It's other things are in play there, you know. So you don't sell much Bordeaux in your restaurant? Would that be, would that be true to say? I think I've got five. Five wines? Yeah. Out of how many? Four hundred fifty. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, I so it's put, pretty... I, I'll put some more. You know, there's still good value in Bordeaux as well. Yes. Yeah. When I say all rated, I don't want to stroke the whole region with a single brush because <laughs> otherwise you'll good. never be invited again, right? Yeah. No, and it's not that. It's, I think there are in Bordeaux there are some fantastic value wines as well. You just need to look and find them. Yeah, be a, a little less lazy, maybe. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about books, because I know that you're you're a great reader and you're interested in psychology. We've talked about this. And, and I know you're a big fan of Carl Jung. And Carl Jung, one of his books was called Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Yeah. Um, I just remember what's the most memorable bottle you've ever had and why? What made it memorable? I think I had, uh, very early on in my career, I had a chance of drinking a 69 Chambartin from Rousseau. And that was on you a You paying? I bought it uh, from somebody for 50 pounds yeah. uh, in 2004. Yeah. And it had an about six centimeters, something like so that. Six uh, centimeters missing from the top yeah, of the neck. Yeah. And we had it on a blind tasting and the wine was just incredible. Everyone stopped. And we had tasted some great wines that night. And it was at Archer's Herigil place in and Swiss cottage. Yeah. And yeah, on a blind tasting at about 11 o'clock at night, everyone stopped and said, what is this? It was that good. And I can never forget that. It's like seeing, it's like seeing a ghost or something or, yeah. or a vision. Absolutely. I can <laughs> still taste it actually. Because that. <laughs> well, that's a very special bottle of wine. Yeah. yeah. Final question is how, do you, how you're running a very busy restaurant, obviously very successful restaurant. And you've got these hobbies that are really interesting. You you know you like carpentry, you do taekwondo, you like reading, you like plants. Um, how do you fit them all in? Do you have time to do other stuff? I don't. <laughs> Just because I like them, it doesn't mean I do them all. <laughs> uh, maybe those are my wish list of things that I would want to do. But I have done taekwondo for a very long time. I can't do it anymore because... My bones are getting old and it's not very joint-friendly sport, so I can't do that anymore. Um, I do a bit of cycling as well. So cycling is probably overtaking everything else at the moment and helps me keep going as well. And a good way of keeping fit, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, also, if you're on the floor, you're walking around a lot, aren't you? Yeah. Have you, have you ever worked at how many miles you walk during a day? About 20. 20 miles a day, just being on the floor. Yeah. Well, not. But at least 20, you haven't got stairs to go up and down. You're all 20, on one floor, right? Uh, no, no, no. Sorry. 14, 15 miles, not 20. But yeah, but that's. There, that are keeps days, there are days you do 20 as well. <laughs> well, today, I know, you know, it's getting close to lunchtime and we're chatting. Uh, I think it's probably time you went off and served some customers. Isa, it's been brilliant talking to you. Uh, if anybody wants to look at the Trivet website, what's the website? Trivetrestaurant.co.uk. Okay, trivetrestaurant.co.uk. Um, I'm a regular customer and I could recommend it highly. Great, fantastic food, fantastic wine. And do ask Issa 
about the challenging wines. Or, right? or, or Philip. <laughs> <laughs> or the V-list. Coming or, soon, or, the V-list. Or, or Philip. Ask Philip as well. <laughs> Philip is our head. Philip. Yeah. Ask Philip or you. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Isa, lovely to see you and talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Great to talk to Isa, and I'm delighted that he was given that well-deserved award by the Michelin Guide this year. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Nina Kaplan, author of The Wandering Vine. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.